You're listening to Simmering Thoughts, a weekly podcast where host Ryan Akers welcomes you to sit back and enjoy slow-cooked thinking on Christian life and theology. This week, Ryan and guest Matt Ferris discuss the redeemed or recreated man, especially in light of the Old Testament law. How do we walk in this current state as redeemed Christians in relationship to the law? How do we live out the law of Christ? Before we begin that discussion, you have just enough time to grab your Bible, find yourself a comfortable chair, maybe even something to drink, and enjoy this episode of Simmering Thoughts. Welcome back to Simmering Thoughts. My name is Ryan Akers, and I'm the host of the program. Joining me tonight uh, for a discussion about sanctification and obedience and how the law plays into all of that and what a a Christian, what a saved person does uh, and what life as a saved person looks like is a gentleman who has written a book. His name is Matt Ferris, and the book's name is If One Uses It Lawfully, and I've had a chance to read that uh, last summer. It was a very good book, a challenging book for me to uh, force my thoughts into dealing with different approaches to the law and to how we live with the law and live with each other around the law in in many ways. Uh, And so I want to welcome Matt to the program. Matt, it is wonderful to have you here. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more? Hey, Ryan. Thanks. Uh, It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to to have a discussion with you about the topic. Um, I am... uh, yeah, I'm not a professional theologian. Um, my my blog is called GentlemanTheologian.com, and, and that uh, sort of plays on the idea of the gentleman farmer who uh, farms, but not as a uh, not as a livelihood. And I am one who believes that every Christian um, should be uh, a gentleman or gentlewoman theologian in the sense that um, if you think of vocational theology as one who is called to do theology, uh, I make the argument that every Christian is called, and the thing that we're called to do is to study God, and so um, every Christian, in a sense, is a vocational theologian, and so I'm a passionate advocate for every Christian um, studying their Bibles deeply and encouraging others to do that. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Uh, and I agree with you there. It is, uh, very important. I, th- I think even not just the Christians are called to be theology, the- theologians. I think everybody is called to be a theologian and, uh, to, and, and that's one of the things of, of fallen man that is a condemnation of them is that they, they aren't a theologian. They don't consider God. They don't study God. And so they don't come to know uh, Christ in any way. They don't, they don't see God in the world around them, much less seek for God in, in scripture. And uh, those of us who have, have sought God, at least at a basic level should never stop. It should be that lifetime uh, study of God and, and the deeper things of God, not just the, the base level. Yes. Yeah. Fully agreed. And with that, uh, 
we I'm going to just go ahead and jump right into the topic because we do have uh, quite a bit that, that we can cover today. There's a lot that goes into this topic. And uh, as a recap, sure. just for a moment before we do that, we have had two episodes already in this series as we're looking at anthropology and looking at the state of man uh, in, in a variety of different ways. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, we looked at man being created and, and what that entails, the image of God being placed on man uh, in our first episode. And then in the, in the last episode, we looked at what that looks like as man falls and what are the impacts on man and man's relationship with God, man's relationship with each other as a result of the fall and, and how that works itself into daily life, how that affects us even as believers. And as we walk through our lives in light of Christ and in light of knowing God, uh, we still fight those things uh, quite a bit. And we, we struggle against sin, even sin within, but also sin without as we deal with others. And so we're going to look a little bit of that, but we're going to turn the, the this prism a little bit as we look at man. We're going to turn the prism just a little, and we're going to look at the state of redeemed man and what it means to be a redeemed man. What is this process? Uh, what is this this thing called sanctification that we see in Scripture? What does it mean for someone who believes to obey? And, and where does that come from? Why do we obey? Uh, what do we obey as we look at uh, redeemed man? So to start with that, uh, let's just deal with what is a redeemed man? What does that look like? Who is, who qualifies? It's a softball question, I fully admit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is one of those things, I think, where various places in the New Testament give us different metaphors, different pictures. The starting point is obviously one who is in uh, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You have placed your trust in him, and uh, that means that there has been fundamentally uh, a transfer, right? Paul talks about it in uh, Colossians 1 as being translated from the kingdom of darkness in the kingdom into the kingdom of God's uh, beloved son. That's one aspect. In Ephesians, he talks about uh, the believer's uh, once being darkness, but they are now light in the Lord. Um, and then in Romans 5, you have the, the great on headship that we were, um, everyone is born under the headship of Adam. Mm-hmm. And for those who are believers, you've, you've transferred um, under the headship of Christ. And so a, a redeemed person is one whose sins are forgiven, who will not come under judgment, um, who is in uh, the church, the body of Christ. Um, I, that that's, I think a good starting point for what we could say Absolutely. to the question of who, who is redeemed man. Yeah. And, and the, the opposition of, and the withdrawal from Adam and the withdrawal from, from what, from the world as well. And the identity in Christ and in his body, uh, and part of the church. I think that's the that's a big key of it. And I, I think that affects uh, our relationships quite a bit. And, you know, as a believer, we should be uh, out rubbing elbows, as it were, uh, and bumping into folks that are not part of the body of Christ. And that's part of our command to go and, and share the gospel. 
and also just part of just living life. Uh, I think at one point Paul says uh, something to the effect of, you know, I told you to withdraw from the world. I meant withdraw the world from within yourself. You're you're never going to be able to get away from those who are uh, part of the world. That's just part of living. And I'm paraphrasing very heavily there. Uh, but uh, right. the same idea is there that, you know, we just can't get away from the lost world. And so I'm wondering, uh, as we look at that, just as a, a starting point for the conversation, um, oftentimes we talk about the life of a believer and, and we're fighting against ideas that are stuck in our heads of worldliness and, and being part of the world. Our, our, our pre-salvation brain isn't quite fully out of our system yet. And so when we talk about obedience and we talk about sanctification, uh, I think a lot of times we speak out of one side of our mouth talking to the church and out of the other side of our mouth in the same sentence without realizing it, we're talking to the unsaved. And that mixing right. really challenges the language. So let's take a moment to, to really uh, identify maybe the difference in uh, relationship, especially in terms of uh, just a, a generic relationship between us and the world. As we talk about, uh, maybe we just say with lost man, the save, the redeemed man and the lost man, the relationship between them uh, and, and how they intersect in terms of what this obedience look like looks like. I think there's plenty in scripture to go to for that. Right. Um, and maybe to back up a little bit, because what you said there touches on another truth of um, redeemed humanity. And that is that that realm transfer, that headship transfer that we were speaking about, we were born under Adam, but those who've trusted Jesus are now under the headship of Christ. Mm -hmm. That that, um, transfer, if you will, is, um, well, our, our death really, because Paul presents the believer in Romans six as having died and been raised anew with Christ. And that affects that realm transfer. But he also presents that as a judicial death rather than an actual one. Right. And that is really important because if you if you don't acknowledge that it's judicial and not actual, then you have a, a hard time explaining uh, why is it that believers sin, right? And yes. so there in Romans 6, he says, you, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this gets to a theme that is that is replete in many aspects of the Christian life, whether it's eschatology or here, and that that is the already not yet aspect of things. Right? We yes. are we are already in Christ, but um, we're not yet free of our sinful urges, our desires, and and some people um, kind of trip on the terminology there and say, "Oh, absolutely not! The believer doesn't have two natures." If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Um, I think that's a semantic question, really, because, you know, to the person who says, oh, I, I don't sin anymore, my glib answer is, well, let me call your spouse over here and have you repeat that, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. The idea that, that a believer simply does not sin or does not respond to temptation is disproven both by scripture and by personal experience. And so I think that that idea 
Um, yes, a realm transfer has occurred. We are under the headship of Christ, but who we were in Adam stays with us until redemption is full and complete. That is until we get our new bodies, mm-hmm. right? So I think part of, you know, that is a big part of reckoning with the question of what is sanctification. Sanctification itself in the New Testament is presented as both a present possession, but also something we pursue, mm-hmm. right? And there are there are verses that, that talk about that. I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about you know, Christ has been made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, right? And Hebrews speaks about those who are being sanctified and also saying he has sanctified yes. forever, right? Through the one offering. So yep. that aspect of the already, not yet, that, that we are, we are uh, light in the Lord now. We were darkness. Um, and I think this is, this is, um, you, you get these two aspects really in Ephesians and in Colossians. To the Ephesians, Paul says, put off the old man and put on the new. But when he's writing to the Colossians, he talks about what Christian holiness looks like. And he says, seeing you have put off the old man and have put on the new. And so in those two epistles, you almost get that um that aspect of the already and not yet. Yeah. I, so I, had, I don't know if that. No, it's happened. right on the line. I had just literally, right before you mentioned Colossians, I had just turned the page. Uh, I had set myself up in Galatians and because there's several things and I may still come back to part of that. But uh, one of the, the, in fact, I'm just going to jump on it. One of the key verses for me that I have, uh, I, for some reason over the last three to five years, I just find this theme just about everywhere I look throughout scripture and that's Galatians two twenty, that, that, uh, yeah. you know, that, that whole idea and that theme just keeps coming back. Uh, and even if you want to go back into 19 on, and all the way through 22 there, as we finish that chapter, um, you know, the, those, that concept of I am dead and I don't live the, the old me is dead, doesn't live anymore, but I have Christ living within me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Uh, and and, and the, then, the, then the gospel uh, idea that he loved me and he gave himself for me. But the, the idea of being dead in Christ, and you had just mentioned, I had literally just flipped over to Colossians right before you mentioned it. And uh, it, right at the beginning, Colossians 3. So if you have been raised with Christ, right. seek the things above where God is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And I think as we talk about sanctification, you know, if it was the, now that you're saved, you're perfect, your, your sin is done. You don't have to worry about that. Why then do we even need the Pauline, especially Paul, but even, even James and Peter uh, and John, uh, as they finish out the rest of the, the new Testament, you get more and more of it in there. Why are we why are we saying to put on the the mind of Christ? Why are we saying that we should we should set our thoughts on earthly or on heavenly things? Why are we saying that uh, we should put off the old man and put on the new as if we need to keep doing this? Uh, if it were already perfectly done the moment you're saved, um, it, it's very much along the same question that you would ask. And I think it's 
this is a micro picture. What happens within us is a micro picture of what's happening in creation at large, uh, in that Christ has come to save us. And that is secured and, and taken care of in his blood that he shed on the cross. But now we're 2000 years later, still living in a world full of sin. The world is still dealing with sin, yes. even though it's been dealt with. And uh, we're waiting that time that already not yet is just it, within us is just a small picture of what's happening uh, cosmically, really. Yes, absolutely. And I think uh, I agree that that theme of having died with Christ and being raised with him is is so important. Um, it 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 goes hand in hand with the realm transfer. And this is why um, I deal with this uh, to a large extent in the book because um, the idea that the law, the law of Moses, provides help in terms of sanctification, you know, I, I refer to it as the rule of life view, where someone would say that absolutely. Uh, the law plays no part in our justification, um, but it does play a role in our sanctification. Uh, and I think, you know, somebody like A.W. Pink, uh, um, he wrote a book on the Ten Commandments and said absolutely that the, the believer is not under the law for justification, but he is under the law for sanctification. And that is that is an idea that I, I, I simply don't find in the New Testament. Um, if you look at just the laws of our of our cities and states and, and the country, the idea that um, someone has disobeyed the law and the law has has brought its full force against them, you know, in a, in a capital crime, right, where the death penalty is the punishment. If that penalty has been carried out and someone has been executed, then the law is finished with that person. It, it can't do anything more to them. And that is the position of the believer that we died with Christ because he bore the curse of the law on the cross. And now that we are raised with him, um, we're in a place where the law doesn't reach. We're in a place where the, the law has no jurisdiction, if you will. Um, so that's, I think, that's an important theme, and I, I think that's uh, one of Paul's major themes in both Romans and Galatians. I think, especially in Galatians, it's it's very clear, uh, and and to a great extent, I think a lot of um, a lot of modern Christian history, and by modern, I say. You know, if you split up Christian history in in the last two thousand years in in four chunks, so we'll take the last five hundred years and call it good for modern. Sure. If we yeah. do that, if we look at that time period, there has been uh, almost endless wrestling with that very question of of where does the law fall? Uh, simply because we we in that last five hundred years we've wrestled with uh, a time period before that where the law was seen as uh, obligatory. There, there, it was just part of your, it was almost part of your salvation in some ways, uh, the way that it was put forth absolutely. in the church. And, uh, absolutely. And, and we get to now, and I agree with you that the, that the law is, is not something that bears upon me negatively. Uh, certainly. 
and and I think that's where the the rule of lifeline to me is a a a, a struggle for me of idiom uh, as much as anything, and and I think about um, the the almost taking it, the way I hear rule of law when it comes into my head is not so much a rule of law like the ruler that my mom used on my knuckles when we played piano and she didn't really do that. It's the metaphor. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. they did other things. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think of it almost as, uh, instead of as the plumb line, uh, I, I think of it as the pattern of life, uh, that, that we are to use right. that as the template almost of where we should go uh, and what our aim ought to be. And it's, it's a different way of, of looking at rule. And it's that, that's where that word has, sure. I know that word has changed meanings, especially in the last 150 to 200 years. Um, and, and we've almost lost that idea of, of rule being a pattern uh, instead of being, um, uh, uh, instead of being a measuring stick of, of negative connotation. It, it I know it was a, a, connotation positively at one point, uh, because I've, I've dealt with it that way in literature at several points. And, uh, it's a meaning that we don't hear today. We rarely hear the word rule used at all in that way. We, we use different words. Uh, so really almost the whole term has fallen out of use and especially that, that more positive connotation. Right. And, and, you know, the word, the word canon means rule. It means a, a measuring Yes. rod, if you will. And mm-hmm. so when we talk about the canon of scripture, we measure truth by the canon of scripture. And I, I put it this way, you know, if there's a, a, a summary of what I am trying to get at in the book, it's that the 10 commandments are not inconsistent with the will of God for his redeemed people now, right? but they are not coextensive with it. That is, they don't go as far as what Christians today are called to. And so I think if you say that the law is our rule, it is our measure, to put it bluntly, you're going to be falling short because the New Testament believer is called to so much beyond the law. Um, the, The Mosaic law had stipulations for loving one's neighbor and it had stipulations for even loving the stranger, the sojourner. Uh, but you don't find in the law the provision that we love one another as Jesus himself loved us. That is a standard that is far beyond yeah, well, yeah. what <laughs> anything in the law um, stipulated. And so it's almost, you know, it, it is a lowest common denominator in, in a way. And... I think the New Testament makes this clear by the many places where Paul Paul had opportunity, for example, with the Corinthians, um, the sexual immorality that was going on. He doesn't quote the law back to them. Um, he says, you know, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. He, he's had numerous opportunities to quote the law to them, and he doesn't. He quotes a different standard, his own apostolic instruction. And so I think one of the objections or what people hear when this is put forth is that somehow the law is bad or the law is um, deficient. Mm -hmm. 
And Paul is very clear that the law is holy and righteous and good. It's not, the, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us, right? right? We are not holy. We are not righteous. We are not good. And, and even ourselves. with the law being the lowest common denominator, we still can't manage it. <laughs> you know, exactly. It's, it's right. the it's the baseline. Yes. It's it's the it's the you know if you think about a ruler as we're talking about the rule, if you think about a ruler, the law is like at the one inch mark, and and what we're called to uh, in through Christ in the I mean he speaks it so well in the Sermon on the Mount where he takes the one inch of the law and he says, all right, you're used to going one inch. I'm going to tell you that you got to go to twelve. And, and that difference in, yes. in looking at, you know, you think about how he speaks about, you know, someone, someone asks to go, you to go with them for one mile, go to, uh, to, to, to go right. above and beyond the law, because, you know, it, it, even as you look at the law and what was required, uh, it's, it's the lowest, it was even supposed to be the lowest that, uh, the Jews would attain to. Uh, and, and that was supposed to be yes. the, the line of, and it's, it's kind of like school rules, but me being a teacher, uh, it's easy for me to, to pull this analogy. You know, you, you tell a classroom, uh, I expect that you're going to do this, this, and this, well, that's, ex- that's what you're going to get. Whereas if you say, here is what I expect, this is what I want to see as opposed to this is what I expect to see. And so you give them the one, this is where I want you to be as opposed to expect you to be. And I think those two differences of, of posture make a big difference as we approach the law. And so many approach the law. I, I, that's where the, uh, the idea of, uh, we sometimes speak out of, out of both sides of our mouths as we speak the, we speak the law, uh, so often in, and, uh, we say it to each other inside the church and outside the church, we speak Christ and there's a, there's a, a loss of, of connection in there. And we, we so often forget to speak Christ to each other. And we so often forget to speak uh, the law to the, to the community. But even then I think speaking Christ to the community is so much bigger uh, than speaking the law because it isn't that lowest denominator. Uh, you know, in terms of of governmental legal structure, you're going to write law to the lowest acceptable level. You know, we expect we we say on the in the the law books of the state. You know, don't murder, don't steal, don't rape, don't uh, beat your children, don't you know those all those don't things. But that's the the minimum standard the state requires for you to be a citizen and to maintain good standing. Uh, we expect you to do more than that, you know, pay your taxes, that kind of stuff. We expect you to be involved in the community. That's part of being part of the community. And uh, that's, that's just kind of the nature of a law. And so often we, we muddle that by how we use and how we speak the law. Yes. Yeah. Fully agree. And what you said about speaking Christ to unbelievers and yet, within the church to other believers, we speak law. I think that that is true and, and too frequent. And it gets to, I guess what's, what's behind that is the idea that this, this division between justification and sanctification, that everyone agrees that the law has no part in justification 
no person can be justified by works of the law before God. But then once we are in God's family, if you will, once we are justified, we bring the law back and say, all right, now this is your standard for how you are to live. And that sort of division, I simply don't find anywhere in the New Testament. This is, this is where the title of, of the book comes from, 1 Timothy 1.8, where mm-hmm. Paul says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing that the law is not made for the righteous. And so that, that is one of the places where Paul says that within the church, among believers, the law is not our standard. The law is not how we measure what does Christian holiness look like. Uh, Jesus is. And this is why Paul says, you know, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? That he puts before Christians the whole uh, character of Jesus. And in so many places, you know, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And those are things that simply are not captured in the law. And so that, um, that I think is important. Yeah. As you, as you look at the law, um, it, 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 you could be righteous by the law because you participated in the sacrificial system and, and you did the, 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 the process you could be fallen by the law but yet within the law, redeemed to the law uh, and, and counted as righteous, having done all the things that the law required of you. Um, but in Christ, we are, we, are unright- we are unable to have our own righteousness toward Christ uh, or, or uh, our own righteousness in light of Christ. We have to have his righteousness. Right. And that difference uh, yes. of understanding that, that we— in Christ, we cannot be righteous enough ourselves. There's just no way. Um, we're the holiness required by Christ. You know, if our standard is the law, it has provision for unrighteousness. Think about the the provisions for the divorce. Because of the sin within you, we allowed you to have divorce. Um, but in the picture of the, the of Christ, there is no provision for that. Uh, there's no provision for us to be uh, unholy on our own and still maintain any righteousness before God. You know, one one drop of unrighteousness is unrighteousness when compared to Christ. And uh, right. there, there's just no getting around that difference in weight between the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of the law. And, and that kind of brings it to a mind, a, a tweet that I sent you uh, around back channels. It was a tweet that I had made as I was thinking about uh, antinomianism. And I had mentioned uh, that, that in a lot of ways, it, it seems to me that antinomianism is almost a Trinitarian error in that the ones who say that the law doesn't de- almost like the law doesn't even exist, even as a baseline um, that, that there's just, it, it, it doesn't even exist, period. It's almost like it's been blotted out of the record. Uh, it, it, in the true antinomian uh, would, would go that direction. And, and that it's almost putting at odds Christ and the law, whereas the law is a picture of what we should attain to. It's just the baseline rather than the idealized picture because we were so far short of the law to start with. We had to get you up to the level of the law to understand that you couldn't be righteous enough. Right. And I, um, 
you, you may have seen at various points when I have tweeted um, things about the law, um, sometimes I'll end the tweet with, no, this is still not antinomianism. Right. <laughs> and um, the, the, the topic of antinomianism, I think, is, is a tricky one because um, I mean, the view that you express there, that, that the law, is, it almost doesn't exist, um, the law does exist, and Paul is clear that it isn't the law that died; it's us who right. died to the law, right? Yeah, and the law so is, the law is fulfilled. Even exactly right, it is fulfilled in us. And so, when Paul, you know, what is the use of the law today? I think Romans three twenty says, "Through the law comes the knowledge of sin." The mm. law revealed sin. Um, you know, I. I use this illustration. Um, I I suffered a bout of Meniere's disease, which I don't know if you've heard of, but it's I, the inner I inner actually have ear. Two of our church members have suffered with that in the okay. last five years. So I I went to various doctors, um, and one doctor said, "Oh, I I've got the thing. I'll give you a shot, a uh, steroid of some sort." Um, in the ear. And that sounds a lot worse than it is. He gave me a topical anesthetic and I didn't even feel it when he gave the injection. Um, but you know, um, he said on the way out the door, uh, now this is going to take about 20 minutes to take effect. Um, try not to swallow for the next 20 minutes or so. (laughs) And had he not said anything (laughs) to me, I don't, you know, Things would have been fine, but yeah. because he said that to me, um, I single-mindedly, you know, I was all about swallowing, which I did far more than I would have otherwise. So the law has that effect on us. Yep. Paul makes that clear in Romans seven. I, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet unless the law said, "Don't covet," and it aroused sin in him. And so that's the other thing that he brings forth is that the law actually increases the trespass right and again this isn't this isn't still saying um it's not saying that the law is bad it's saying that this is the effect it has on our corrupt hearts mm-hmm. maybe you know when you were a kid i don't know if you did this but i we all did it you, you take a a bottle and in those days there were no safety caps on the prescriptions and you put <laughs> vinegar and baking soda together yes. you cap it right and it you get a reaction that's kind of what happens with our sinful flesh and the law. You get a reaction, yep. not a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of some other things like in the classroom, you know, it's, uh, it's why you don't tell kids what not to do. You tell them what to do. You know, you give them the positive instruction right. of, right. I want you to do this. And you don't even give them a picture of the negative yeah. because as soon as you give them the picture of the negative, they're going to go test it. You know, it's, it's the, the watch this right. mentality <laughs> of, of, I actually had a yes. student, uh, oh goodness, it's been a decade now. Uh, it was a high school student of mine who had a t-shirt and, and for context folks that, that don't understand where Santa Claus, Indiana is, uh, we are, I, I've been coming to find that this is the way to put it. We are in the middle of everything, but the center of nothing. Uh, we're, we're three hours from everywhere. There's, there's big city, bigger cities within an hour's drive, but within 15, 20 minutes, there just isn't anything. We have two stoplights in my school district. And so when I say I live 
in rural area. I really do mean that. And uh, this particular student lived even more rural. And, and so he understands that he was uh, poking fun at himself in, in what he was wearing here. Uh, he had a T-shirt that said, famous redneck last words. And on the back, it said, watch this. And, and it's kind of that idea of, <laughs> of you know, it says on the cap, do not, do not use this product as, as other, unless as it intended. And they're going, hmm, I wonder what I can use this product for. I mean, it's, it's exactly that idea of, oh, you mean I'm not supposed to do that? Well, that means I'm going to do it. Or the wet paint sign. Uh, I use that with students a lot. You know, when you see a wet paint t- sign, yeah. how many of you reach out and just touch it to see? And it's, that's very much what <laughs> exactly. the law is, yeah. is, oh, hey, look. You're not supposed to do this. Oh, really? Watch me. And that's that's the sinfulness of our hearts that you want to test whether you're depraved or not. Look at a wet paint sign and see whether you're tempted <laughs> to touch it. That's a minimum test. But I mean, so many of us are like, we're really tempted to wonder, is that sign telling me the truth? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, that also, um, that leads to another thought and that is, um, the idea that once we are redeemed, once we are indwelt by the Spirit, that the Spirit now somehow enables us to keep the law. Mm-hmm. And one of the authors that I cite in the book uh, more or less said that the believer is in the same position as Moses was with regard to the law. We are enabled supernaturally to keep the law, but never perfectly. And I thought, that is just strange because strange. <laughs> um, nowhere in the in scripture can you find any of those ideas that we are supernaturally enabled if we're supernaturally enabled to do something is the power of the spirit somehow inadequate to have us obey the law completely why why only partially um, and so that idea i think is a pernicious one because if you say that the believer is now enabled by the spirit to keep the law um, and, and you you set about to, to do that, you're going to inevitably fail. And then what happens when you fail, right? Well, that's where another division that I think is, is an unscriptural one gets introduced into the equation. And that is you're under the law. Um, you have to do what it says, but if you fail or rather when you fail, nothing happens. There's no condemnation. There's no, no, no harm, no foul. And again, that, that is an idea that the commandment divorced from the condemnation, um, whatever that is, it's no longer law. And I think the way, one of the ways that Paul actually affirms the law is to say, yes, it killed me. Yes, it did its work in me. It slew me. And now that I'm dead, I've actually been raised again to new life in Christ. And, and we're back to that, or we're, we're on to that place where the law isn't a factor. And I, you know, to, to return, I guess, to, to the antinomian theme, um, I meandered a bit from where <laughs> That's I okay. intended to go. But, you know, people talk about... Um, well, doctrinal antinomianism versus practical antinomianism. Um, someone reading my book or listening to what I'm saying would probably say that I am a doctrinal antinomian. That is, if I'm affirming 
freedom from the law, that the law is not the standard by which Christian life is measured, that I am an antinomian. But I think it's important to recognize that that the term antinomian is one of historical theology and not of scripture. Scripture doesn't speak about it. Well, it, it simply doesn't contain the word antinomian. It contains the word anomia, lawless, but that's mm-hmm. a different thing. Right. Um, and and the, the point that I make is scripture does contain the word hyponomian. In other words, under the law. And Paul is clear when he says you are not under the law. You are not hyponomian. Right. He says that in Galatians 5, 18 um, and other places. And so it's almost, I would say, almost a straw man, the idea of antinomianism. Now, for those folks who say that um, a position of not being under the law encourages sin, um, Paul has an answer for that, right? He says, shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. You know, how can we who have died to sin any longer live to it? And I think the point there is two things. Absolutely, Paul is interested that Christians pursue holiness that they pursue Christ-likeness, and that they be conformed to his image. But in none of those goals does he present the law as the way to do it or as in any way helpful. In fact, you know, in Romans 6.14, he pretty much says that the way that if you are under the law, you are still under the dominion of sin. And so, you know, freedom from the law is not freedom to sin. It is freedom to bring forth fruit to God. And that, that's another, I think, subtle uh, but important distinction that Paul makes. He always talks about the Christian life in terms of fruit bearing, mm-hmm. um, not in terms of law keeping. So I, I don't know if that distinction makes sense, but I think it's it's a critical one. It makes sense. And I, I, as I'm processing all of that i I think some of it is uh a matter of thinking about what what is it we are obeying as christians you know are are we obeying the law which condemns or are we obeying the the pattern of christ uh and again there's that idea absolutely of, of one being the 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 minimum bar of of you know sinful man hey look here's the bar and that's the law. And then we look at holy God and here's what God is. This is what we should attain to. We shouldn't attain to simply keeping the law. We should attain to going beyond the law and, and um, attaining to God's character as best we can with through the guidance of the spirit within us. I mean, if we are temples of the spirit, as we're told we are, then we ought live uh in that holiness of, of who God is. And that's where I think it's hard when, when we're talking about living holy lives, it's really hard to separate out uh, and, and to blot out the law entirely uh, because it does instruct us and in, in gives categories, at least, I guess, for uh, processing right. what's going on in us. And so we can see, it's almost like, uh, instead of being the sort of Damocles dangling above our head, the law that condemns, it becomes a scalpel that we can hold and and 
and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the Spirit can do the work within us to, to cut away those dead parts uh, that have been killed through the law, that the law has brought death to us. The Spirit can cut that away from us and so that we are enabled to live to Christ and live to the holiness that we're called to above and beyond. You know, if, if my only aim is to not covet my neighbor's wife, well, what about his unmarried daughter? You know, you get those questions, <laughs> you know, right? the law doesn't deal right. with the, the law doesn't deal with that. The, the law doesn't speak anything about an unmarried uh, woman other than don't go and steal her and don't rape her. Okay. I don't recall anything right. in there about don't look at, and that's where Christ takes the law. And, you know, if the law is the one inch mark, Christ takes it and moves it up to 12 and says, okay, don't even look. You're not, that is beyond what is acceptable. It's not that the law isn't right. there. The law certainly, you know, you can point at somebody and says, all right, you're, you have clearly failed at the law. I have a question. And what it should do, the, the law should point us to a question. And the question is, have you gone before Christ with this? And it shouldn't drive us back to look right. at ourselves in comparison to the law. But if we're failing the law, now we need to take that to Christ, uh, as opposed to taking ourselves back to the yeah. law to put ourselves with the law. Um, you know, it, it's it's simply a matter yeah. of seeing where we are. Um, it's a, it's a it's almost like a status check. Uh, oh, I'm not even I'm not even meeting the minimum of the law here, uh, and that's where I some I, I've read several works where someone takes the law and they're almost expanding the law in some ways as to uh, take the concept behind this commandment and you spin it this way and that way and look under it and over it and around it and you examine all of the different ways in which we fall short of that command. And that is a useful, that's, that's using the law as a scalpel to, to cut away the deadness within. Um, but I think it is so important to take that and go the next step then to say, uh, to, to seek out in prayer and to seek out in, in, uh, learning Lord, show me how to do this the right way. Don't, don't, I don't want to just see where I'm falling short, which is so important for us to do. Cause unless we see our sin, it's really hard to, to, to seek the Lord, to cut that sin out of our life. Uh, but you know, as we do that, it's so important not to be, take a, a a club and just beat ourselves over the head with it and become uh, become almost depressed, spiritually depressed, because of our sin. Uh, and and right. it's almost a morose attitude to to sit and look at your deadness as opposed to to see your deadness and run to Christ and find life. Yeah, and I I think. You know, we, we have kind of launched into talking about the law, but we should probably back up and and make some um, observations or decisions mm -hmm. because of the way that the law is, is typically spoken of, right? And and what I'm referring to is the so-called moral law, and it, it's exceedingly common to speak about, you know, the moral, civil, and ceremonial aspects of the law, right? And today, when people talk about using the law uh, as a rule of life, they're typically only talking about the Ten Commandments, the, the moral law. And one of the points I think is, is critical is that that distinction isn't found in Scripture. And that's 
that's not something that only I have observed. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something that others have as well. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the book Kingdom Through Covenant by uh, Wellam and Gentry. There are a whole plethora of things in the law that are outside of the Ten Commandments proper, but that are certainly moral in nature, mm-hmm. right? Um, not taking a bribe, right? right? Everyone, I think, would consider that a moral commandment or, you know, that Israelites were not to loan money at interest to their fellow Israelites. Again, part of, you know, it's a moral commandment. Is it part of the Ten Commandments? No. Well, can we say then that it's not a moral command? No. So this, the idea, right, when you start to parse it in that way and say, well, only the moral law remains, becomes problematic. Now, you can point to those places in the New Testament. Um, you know, I think it's Mark 7, where you know, Jesus says, what goes into a man doesn't defile him, it's what comes out, as he said, making all things clean, etc. And then Paul also mm-hmm. writing to Timothy, um, similar, right, where we can say that those aspects of the law are no more. But I would say that it's not just, he he didn't um, say that only those are no longer applicable. Um, When you come to second Corinthians three, right, which is a, um, an important section, it's clear. Paul is talking about the Decalogue, the 10 commandments there. When he talks about what was written in stone, Right. And he calls it a ministry of death. He calls it a ministry of condemnation. Um, and he he clearly says that it is passing away. And so I think that if you make the distinction between moral, civil, and ceremonial with a view to retaining only a portion of it and saying to the Christian, you're still obligated to this, that's that, that can't be sustained by the New Testament. I want to jump back for just a moment into um, Galatians. We were there a little while ago. And and I think this, so many for me, so much of it for me, Galatians, I keep going back to, uh, it's something that I've done as a study the last several summers. I've gone through and in depth looked at Galatians in a variety of different ways. And uh, even before then, uh, Galatians 2 especially and Galatians 5 especially have uh, been something in my mind since I was in high school uh, and, and something that I, I constantly go back to and meditate on. And uh, and I think as we start in, uh, for example, uh, 5.13, for you are called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use the freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve one another through love. And, and it says the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor. And then it goes on to say, don't bite and devour one another. And then it says, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so we're, we're, we're pointing to the spirit as something that is beyond the law. You know, as you look at, at verse 22 uh, or verse 23, the law is not against such things. And it lists right before that, the fruit of the spirit. The law does not condemn the spirit. Uh, in fact, the, the, the spirit fulfills the law. The, the, the spirit uh, goes beyond the law. 
much like it says, you know, right. the, the law is fulfilled in the statement, love your neighbor. Well, let's look at the fruit of the spirit. We just talked about that in the, in the last season of, of simmering thoughts. We did a, a series on the fruit of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. As we go through that whole list, those are things that are, that take the law and, and move us from one to 12 or, or toward 12 at least. And if we put our, if we, if we constantly are looking at uh, verses 19 to 21, where we're going through the list of the works of the flesh, if we're constantly looking at the works of the flesh, instead of looking at the fruit of the spirit, uh, we're not going to show fruits of the spirit because we're worried about what's happening inside of me. You know, if I'm worried about uh, sexual immorality inside of me, if I'm worried about promiscuity within, if I'm worried about idolatry within, if I'm focusing on those things, I'm not taking my time to, it's almost like we're worried so much about obedience that we forget worship. And as we, as we take those two things and we, and we, we focus on the, on my flesh obedience, then I forget about living through the spirit, worshiping the spirit, being in the spirit. Um, and, and those, those moments of temptation, uh, when we're in the spirit, the, the work of the flesh is just, it's, it's nothing in comparison. Yeah. What, what you bring out there is, is another really important point. And that is the difference between keeping the law and fulfilling the law. And, what may seem like a kind of artificial distinction is in fact an important one that Paul makes there in Galatians where you quoted um, that love is the fulfillment of law. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then back in, in Romans 13, which is the other passage that people will frequently go to. If you say the Christian is no longer obligated to the law, it's, well, look, doesn't Paul list a number of the Ten Commandments here in Romans 13? Um, how can he say we're not under the law? But look at what he says there. Yes, he, he references several of the commandments, but he says they're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And in none of those places does Paul say keep these commandments. Rather, he says, love one another. And it's, it's, a, a, it's almost a formula, right? If I focus on loving others, the law will be fulfilled. It's not kept, but I don't have to worry about keeping it. Um, on the other hand, if I focus on keeping the law, it nowhere says that I will arrive at love. I will love others as Christ has loved us. And so, you know, I, I've used the illustration of that carnival game. I think it's technically called high striker, right? Where you have that tall thing with a, you know, you go up to it and you whack it with oh, a mallet, yeah. right? And you try yeah. and ring, ring the bell at the top, right? And if, you know, if ringing the bell is, is hitting a hundred, right? Um, and let's say that that is that is conformity to Christ. That's pursuing Him, and the law is perhaps seventy on that, right? If they're numbered ten, twenty, thirty, etc. If I ring that bell, if I strive to you know reach that, I'll go I'll go past seventy, right? I don't have to worry about that. 
But if I whack that thing and say, I just want to get to 70, I won't, I won't hit the top. Right. And so I don't know if that accurately captures it, but love is the fulfilling of the law. And if you focus on that, then, you know, the new Testament doesn't put emphasis on, on keeping the law. It, it just, it's, it's not there. I, I think almost in some ways, um, uh as you were mentioning Romans 13 and looking at it, it, it bounced my brain uh, over to first Corinthians 13, as we look at what love is. Uh, and you go through that right. list and you compare it to what the law is. And it's, you know uh, you know, even if you have the, the, the gifts, you know, even if you have all of these wonderful things, if you do all of these things, but you don't do it through love, it is not there. And, uh, in the love, not just of man, but the love of God. And, uh, you know, the, the, as it goes through the list, the love is patient and kind, not, not envious, not boastful, not arrogant, rude, self-seeking. Those are things that, that are beyond the law. Um, you know, the, some yes. of it is, is strictly law, but those are things that even that, that take it away from self and I think that's part of the point of love, and that's part of the point of the law. Of the law, the law points at us, at us, and the Christ, the the law, the law of Christ, or if you want to word it as the pattern of Christ, points us at Him. And that difference in where we're looking: are we looking back at our unsaved life, or are we looking forward to uh, Christ? And that that is a big difference in understanding what we're to live for. And I, those who, those who are the true antinomians. And I almost think that, that there is an aspect of antinomianism that still floats around. And some of it is in the almost pure conversionism or, or even it's just an outgrowth of some of the, the techniques that have been used over the last century or so, um, in terms of sharing the gospel of we have generations. And, and one of the guys I had on last year, uh, Alan Nelson wrote a book uh, uh, from death to life. And he deals a lot. He's a pastor in Arkansas and he deals a lot with those who say, well, you know, I was, I was saved. I, I said a prayer. I, I, I did what the preacher told me to do. I'm good to go. I don't have to worry about it anymore. That is the antinomian who says, because I said this, because I did something, then the law doesn't matter anymore. Uh, following Christ doesn't matter anymore. They just write off all of it. Uh, the the anti the true antinomian right. will write off even Christ, and will see uh, striving after Christ even as a keeping of the law, uh, and and it's almost a, a religious isolationism uh, packaged as yes. Christianity, oh. and I I think that's right. the especially in our context. That's the picture of antinomianism yeah. we're most likely to run into. Yes, uh, fully agree. And in fact, I, I, I have a book coming out in not too long that deals with that very thing. I mean, I think essentially what you're describing is nominalism, right? Yes. Someone Absolutely. has prayed a prayer and nothing in their life says that they have a relationship with Jesus, right? And, and for anyone who is continuing in sin, the uniform call in the New Testament is repent. Don't keep doing that. Right. Turn, right? And, yep. and for Christians or one who makes a claim to be a Christian, 
who does that, Paul always goes back to the incongruity of that, that you, right? He says to the Ephesians, you were once darkness, but are now light in the Lord. And his next statement is walk as children of light, right? And so be consistent, be who you are. And this is where, you know, in the, in the Reformed tradition, they do talk about the indicative and the imperative. And I think that's exactly right, that we do because of who we are. Right. And all of the imperatives of the New Testament are given not to make us um, something we aren't, but in fact, they are given because of who we already are. Right. And so, absolutely, we become more of what we already are. But for the person who is viewing their relationship with Jesus as, as, as transactional, I prayed that prayer. Yes, I've taken care of that. Um, the, the message is that this is, this is not a transaction. This is a relationship. And I mean, imagine if you, if you, you know, on your wedding day, you got married and from then on, you spent no time with your spouse. You didn't mm -hmm. talk. You didn't, yeah. I mean, yeah. you wouldn't call that a marriage. You wouldn't call it a relationship. And so yeah, there is a new Testament answer to that. Absolutely. You mentioned Ephesians, and and as you were mentioning it, my mind actually was thinking of the of the Ephesians, but it wasn't thinking of the book of Ephesians. I was thinking in Revelation, uh, as it deals with the Ephesian right. church, and and what is it that they're condemned for? Uh, they're not really condemned. Um, it's a tough word, <laughs> but they're they're called the task <laughs> for. They're called the task for right. abandoning their love. You know, you're still doing your works. Right. But the works you're doing are not done from love. You need to go do the works you did at first in love. And that, that idea of repenting right. is, is very much that. We try to do the works of the law, but we, do don't, we don't do them out of the overflow of the Holy Spirit within us and in, in the, the joy and the, the uh, thankfulness and the gratefulness. You know, do all things with thankfulness. Pray at all times. Those things are f flowing out of our... Uh, our thankfulness to God, our gratitude to God for his grace and his love. And as he loved us, so we love others ought to be the, the flow yes. of our life as opposed to, I do this because I want to uh, be worthy of, and it, it's, we, we can't make it work. We cannot manage worthy of, we can only manage to, no. to be a conduit to, to be, to receive God's love and then to, give God's love as a result. And uh, so often we try to do that the other way around. And I think that's where we try to, we try to achieve obedience. And, it, and I had that on the outline that we had looked at uh, the difference between obedience and worship. And, and so often uh, we try to do, try to do, try to do and o obey and obey is yes, God demands obedience, but the obedience he enables our obedience as believers in Christ, he enables us to obey. Whereas, you know, without Christ, we have no chance of obeying. We, we can't even manage the law, much less obey the love that he requires of us and the, the, the perfection that he requires of us. And that difference uh, between desiring to do yeah. God's will because of what he's done for us and trying to obey, uh, that's, a, that's a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And that what you're talking about is, is the response 
of a thankful heart. It's the response of someone who increasingly understands what their redemption means, what uh, salvation entails. And, and the, you know, the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul is almost overflowing in describing you know, the riches of his grace made to abound toward us and that we can somehow be sanctified or become more like Christ mm-hmm. through the law. It, 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 it devolves to an almost checkbox sort of relationship. Yeah. Um, it, just tell me what I need to do. I'll check that off. Um, but that, that really isn't a relationship. It's the difference between a student and a scholar. You know, I, yeah. I so often, how many yeah. kids did you go to school with that the teacher gave an assignment and the question was, okay, what, what do I have to do? As opposed, that's the student, as opposed to the scholar who gets the assignment and goes, oh, cool. And they go dig in and they turn in, you know, more than, and, and some of those, some students did that to, right. to earn brownie points as it were. Uh, it, but others were genuinely excited about the topic and they, they gave themselves to the topic so as to learn and in learning, right. then they were able to produce, uh, as opposed to the student who just goes, "Oh, well, that's what I have to do." Okay, check, 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 and they hit the they hit the minimum, or the difference. But you, you mentioned in our private conversation, you mentioned being a musician as well. It also th- makes me think about the kid who comes to play their scales or comes to play any checkoff activity. You know, they come and they play the the rudimentary. They play the scale, but right. there's no. There's no, there's no anything to it. It's just notes. And then there's the kid who comes in and plays the scale and you can actually hear them turning a scale into a melody as they play it. And that, that difference of, of putting love into obedience or obedience that happens because of the love that they have for the work. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I use the illustration. In fact, my wife gave me this illustration of, of someone who's a, a non-native speaker of a language, yes. right? And as you learn a second language, you have to think through like, okay, what is the conjugation of that verb? You know, just this noun, do I have to decline that to the proper case and all that stuff? And you speak kind of haltingly at the beginning as you figure things out, as opposed to a native speaker who you you just speak naturally and we don't worry about keeping the rules of the language or keeping the rules of yeah. grammar. We do keep those rules, but we do it without effort. We, if you will, we fulfill the rules of grammar without keeping yep. them. And that's, you know, Christians should be native speakers of grace. Mm. And that idea, I think is that, that is, that is the goal. That's not to say that, it is easily achievable, right? But that is the goal. It, it isn't that we be law conformed, it's that we be conformed to Christ. And that the goal is not keeping statutes, the goal is conformity to the Savior. Yeah. And, you know, that, that, requires, um, that requires a lot more than simply checking the list. Have I done this? Have I done that? Um, but the... Um, the rewards of it are so much greater. Yeah. Right. I keep coming back to the way we closed the last episode in many ways. Uh, we added some things to it, but the idea that, that um, nothing, uh, 
before God do we bring? It's just simply to the cross. That's it. That's all we have is to cling to the cross. Yes. And as we cling yep. to the cross, as we cling to Christ, um, so much more is given to us. And that that's, I mean, we've circled around that idea, spiraled around it several times. And uh, that's really, that's, that's where we are. That same idea, the same thing that we were talking about last episode in the fall. And what is our hope in the fall uh, is to, to cling to Christ. The same is true as we look at sanctification and obedience. It's simply cling to Christ, cling to Christ, cling to Christ. And uh, as we do that, yes. we will be conformed more and more to him uh, as we, as we uh, feed, uh, feed from his word and uh, and look at his pattern and and seek him uh there is hope there and and if we're simply trying to do the law and i and i don't i think some who say rule of life don't necessarily mean do the law but i think there are those who do uh and the ones who do you know no, it's, yeah, I, I it's so dangerous to do yeah. to think of do the law you know you have to accomplish these things or that, that you have to achieve your sanctification. It's just so dangerous. And so, um, crushing, uh, it's, it's, you want to feel pressed. Uh, you will be pressed yeah. by the law if you try to keep it. Absolutely. And I, I, I agree with what you've said there and in, in, in what I wrote in the book and in what I've said, I, I, I don't, mean to say that people who hold to this view that the law is our rule of life are saying that you need to keep this checklist you needed i think they they are absolutely um their intention is that that believers are sanctified that they become more like christ but you you hit on some of those dangers there that people have different um you know the the makeup of everyone is different, mm-hmm. and so there's there's the danger that if you say, "Look, you're under obligation to keep the law," um, they're going to try to do that, and they're going to inevitably fail, and it's going to lead them to despair, yeah. right? Because their conscience is is saying, "I've failed again," uh, or uh, a second group is going to say, "Well, hey, I'm I'm pretty good yeah. at this," right? Yeah, and and that's going to lead to pride. Yep. Right. Or the third danger is that they're going to begin to look at sin and say, well, that that really isn't a sin. Right. And you begin to define sin downward yep. only to what is what is outward, whereas the, the New Testament standard is just so much higher than that. So I think, you know, pursuing sanctification by keeping law has has those potholes. Yeah for anyone who tries. Well, we mentioned uh, uh, a little bit of Spurgeon, or not Spurgeon, but uh, Bunyan uh, with Pilgrim and, and the, the burden being loosed. And that was just the beginning of, of his journey in so many ways. And he ran into pride and despair and those yes. very things along the way. <laughs> and, and so, again, pointing right back to a classic work of literature, uh, if you've not read that, go read it because he deals with those very things that we we struggle against. Um, and I think uh, I don't know. Have have you read the Mirror of Modern Divinity? Um, I haven't. I, I remember you mentioning it in the book, but I don't. I think it was just a section rather than the whole work. Right. C- correct. Yes. Uh, I I he deals with that 
and I, I love the way he deals with that, the antinomian in that. And, and he, he does take the rule of life view, but I don't think he, right. I think he words it kind of the, in some ways, kind of the way we've been talking about. There's some places where I disagree with him, but the idea is the same, that there's the nomian, the one who it just puts the law in your face. And then there's the one who says, oh, law, that's nothing. And, and he does a good job of weaving in between there. It's not right. perfect, but uh, it's it gives a really good picture, and especially for somebody f- first coming into it, to wrestle through um, that. It's a sticky wicket if you're not careful, and you can get yourself into into difficulty easily. And and I think yes. uh, both of those works, uh, being analogies as they are, uh, both of those works do a good job of helping frame seeing Christ and and seeking Christ. Uh, and that's the, especially with uh, Pilgrim, uh, constantly seeking Christ and, and going for yeah. the, cele- my, my aim is the celestial city. That's where I'm going and, and to, to strive for that. Right. Uh, and so with that, I, I do want to go ahead and close. I want to say, Matt, thank you so much uh, for taking time out of a Saturday morning uh, to come on and do a little bit of recording and uh, talk about this. I've, I've been looking forward to this for a little while. Uh, trying to get everything planned up and uh, it's it's been a really good conversation for me uh, just if nobody else listens to it sorry folks that's one's for me it's a great conversation but I pray <laughs> that you will be edified by it as well and that you will find hope in the gospel and that you will find hope in Christ and in his perfections uh, rather than despair in your own imperfections and uh, with that we want to say goodbye and thank you for listening to Simmering Thoughts Thank you for listening to this episode of Simmering Thoughts. You can join the conversation by emailing us at simmeringthoughts at gmail.com. You could also find us on Facebook at Simmer Thoughts, where we have a page and a discussion group. We'd love to hear from you there. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Simmer Thoughts. You can find past episodes of Simmering Thoughts on a variety of podcast catchers, including iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in radio. Don't forget to like and subscribe and share simmering thoughts with your friends. We hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of Simmering Thoughts. <laughs>